I'm Peter Rudlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If it's your first time here in the show, good news, it's a super simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives at some point or another who helped shape who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every teacher we have on, whether teacher, coach, or counselor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So please, please, please be a part of the show. Tell us about the person who comes to your mind. Email us with your nominations and also story suggestions over at teacherslounge at niu.edu. Today on the show, we have Mark Kleisner. He's the executive director at West 40, which is a service center for a bunch of school districts here in northern Illinois. And he's also the president of the Illinois Association of Regional Superintendents of Schools, IARSS. Cannot get used to saying that really, really long name and acronym. But anyway, he helped craft the group's annual teacher shortage report. And in today's show, we're going to have an in-depth conversation with Mark about the report and kind of just the state of the teacher shortage, especially during the pandemic. And we talked a lot about the extraordinary lack of substitutes that so many districts are facing, the lack of prospective students that aren't joining the workforce. There's the dry pipeline and also maybe about some potential solutions. Before we get to that conversation, we do have one story that we want to share. Over the past few weeks and, and even months, I've been working on a series of stories about lead exposure, both lead in water and paint here in Illinois. And the first story I wrote is about education. It's about how a few years ago, after the Flint water crisis news broke, Illinois elementary schools were forced to test their water for lead. But what happened if they found it? An Illinois Department of Public Health fact sheet doesn't dance around the issue. Quote, there is no safe level of lead. Lead is a poison and even small amounts can interfere with normal body processes and development. And in early 2017, in response to the lead contamination crisis in Flint, Michigan, the Illinois legislature passed a law requiring schools to test their water for lead. All schools and daycares that teach students under 6 years old and were built before the year 2000 had to test. That's because young children are especially vulnerable to developmental delays from lead contamination. state of Illinois has a major problem with lead. I mean, we were one of the big states that used a lot of lead and built up during that time when lead was out there. That's Melissa Lencheski, a professor at Northern Illinois University who studies environmental microbiology and contaminant hydrology. If a school's water sample exceeded five parts per billion of lead, they were required to send a notice home to parents. Some districts, like DeKalb, tested every school. Of the 13 buildings, 11 had samples over the state-mandated level, forcing them to notify parents. Several, like Huntley Middle School, had dozens of sinks and water fountains over five parts per billion. Other water sources turned up much higher. One elementary school sink had levels over 1,000, nearly 300 times higher than the required parent notification level. So what happens after a school finds elevated lead levels? Tammy Carson is DeKalb School District's Director of Facility and Safety Operations. She helped lead the lead testing a few years ago. And she says they decided to replace fixtures and take water fountains out of service if they were over 15 parts per billion. Anything that was over that level that we did replace, we then retested after that fact. The Environmental Protection Agency recommends schools take action if they have results over 20 parts per billion. And the Illinois Department of Public Health recommended schools create mitigation strategies, but 
didn't require them to do anything else besides contacting parents. I mean, honestly, based on the letter of the law, we're not obligated to do anything else. And that's one thing that I'll I'll say is kind of frustrating is, you know, the requirement to test, we understood, but to not receive guidance on what the expectation is moving forward kind of feels like it, it falls dead. They also started flushing drinking water sources for two minutes every month. Carson says that before the law, they never had to test for lead, and they haven't had to retest since either. We would rather have some clear direction on the expectations so that it doesn't come back and there's an issue found in the future, but it's, it's just not there. Mark Ekstrom is the director of buildings and grounds for the Sycamore School District. Every elementary school had at least a few lead samples over the parent notification level. He says they replaced a few faucets and are working on removing dead-end pipes where water sits and could become a breeding ground for Legionnaire's disease. Any of the drinking water, though, at every building, we put in reverse osmosis in. Even though they're not required to test for lead again, Ekstrom says they should. To make sure, you know, every five to ten years, kind of, hey, is it still at the same levels? even though we know a lot of our stuff is safer now, but our buildings still are getting older, and, you know, a lot of our buildings are from 1950s. Curiously enough, the Sycamore Elementary School with the highest level of lead was the newest building. In fact, they didn't have to test the school at all since it was built after 2000. Now, how is that possible? Matt Anderson is the Sycamore Public Works Director and works with water quality. He says it's because even, quote, lead-free fixtures in newer buildings can contain certain amounts of lead. Water sources at the newer elementary school were over twice the EPA's action level. So it raises the question, why were schools built after 2000 exempt from lead testing if fixtures in those schools can still contain that much lead? Daycare centers and preschools built before 2000 also had to test. The parental notice level was even lower because kids that young are at even higher risk of developmental delays from lead. Data obtained by WNIJ shows 13 of the 14 DCFS-licensed facilities in DeKalb and Sycamore had levels high enough to disclose to parents. One preschool, ABC in Sycamore, had lead levels that high in over 70% of the sources they tested. In 2020, the school replaced more than 30 fixtures, had stopped allowing students to use water fountains, and were serving them water from a faucet that tested below two parts per billion until they retested. Unlike school districts, the Department of Child and Family Services required facilities to implement mitigation plans like water treatment or fixture replacement. NIU professor Melissa Lencheski studies contaminant hydrology, and she says the schools should be testing more than just once. But students are more likely to be exposed to lead at home where they drink more water than in school. She says the solution for schools with elevated lead levels might not be to rip up all of the pipes and replace every fixture. She does say that reverse osmosis filters are very effective and regular flushing helps too. I think the solution really is is to educate parents, but also to have a safe drinking water fountain that you know the kids, this is the only place they can get water where you know it's got these proper lead filters into it and it's regularly tested. Lancheski says lead in water and paint is a huge infrastructure issue that's endemic in the United States and here in Illinois. And she says it's going to take big investments from cities, states, and the federal government to protect kids from lead poisoning. You can check out the rest of our lead series by heading over to WNIJ.org whenever you want to. And now, without any further ado, it's time for my conversation about the state of the teacher shortage in 2022 with Mark Kleisner. 
right now, are you more optimistic about the teacher shortage than you were at this point last year? Less so? Is it about the same? Um, I am less encouraged. I am more concerned. What makes you more concerned than, than last year? Um, well, you know, one, one thing I would start with is that we, we started our conversations in 15. And right. by 17, we decided to do a study. 17, 18, 19, all were going downhill. And then COVID hit and it like dropped off a cliff. Mm -hmm. Now, that's all my perception. But one of our data points is 96% of the people who responded expected to get worse through 23 and 24. Yeah. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like around the 2019-ish range, right before the pandemic, it felt like some of those indicators were maybe a bit more positive in terms of looking at the future. Is that right? It is correct. Yep. Particularly um, enrollment in education programs in higher ed. You know, across the state, we saw it was something between a one and three percent increase like it leveled out and just started to to pick up a little so you know one to three percent on on like all-time low numbers isn't really exciting but leveling out at all was and um throughout the pandemic it has just it's just become even more i was using the word crisis in 19 and you know whatever is is it uber crisis or <laughs> is, yeah, is there a word worse than crisis, a catastrophe? I, I, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, Armageddon or something. I don't know. Anyway. Um, Do you think that people see like, like outside of you and I, you know, you live in this stuff every single day. You're reading, helping craft these reports. I'm covering education. And so we get the idea that this teacher shortage is a, you know, a crisis, a catastrophe. Do you think that that's evident to just normal families, people that aren't thinking about this stuff every day? So I love that question. And I'm, I, what I'm going to say is yes, yeah. because it became personal. So mm -hmm. like this, this past month, Peter, we've had numerous districts that closed because they didn't have enough staff to open. Mm -hmm. Happened around sudden, us. And then you saw it on Chicago, but it's not just Chicago. Chicago aside. No, it happened in West Chicago, right here in, in DuPage County. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, people are like, what am I supposed to do for daycare? Mm -hmm. Or what do you mean the buses aren't running today? Um, I was talking to folks in Plainfield and they could not run their bus fleet. So they begged parents to bring kids to school. Well, what I heard was that parents were waiting half an hour to 45 minutes in line to drop off their kids at school. And, you know, like human nature in general, when it kicks you in the knee, you suddenly realize that they're not making it up. Right, when it comes to your front door. Yep, exactly right. The other thing that I found, I thought it was pretty creative. One of my superintendents sent a letter home to parents and said, we know you, we know you're investing in the community. How about being a substitute? You can make $150 a day. Here's the process. Here's how you get licensed come be a substitute one or two days a week. I thought it was kind of brilliant. Like you're already invested in the community. You're paying, you're paying real estate taxes and everything. Why not be part of the solution if you're somebody who has a day or two available? Um, 
he communicated that he didn't have a whole lot of takers, but the notion again was it came right to the doorstep. Yeah. Um, kids want to be in school. I mean, that's what it, it sounds counterintuitive, but kids want to be with their friends. You know, they want to be at school. They want to have recess. They want to whatever, um, be part of the clubs, the sports teams. Um, kids very badly want to be back in school. And under the current rules, I, I see us over the next couple of weeks, there's going to be more of these closures. We don't have enough bus drivers. We don't have enough substitutes. We don't have enough people to work in the lunchrooms. Mm. Um, so yes, it has come right to the front door. And I think people can't, they can't avoid it at this point. Um, is the substitute shortage, do you think that's the most pertinent to districts on, on a day-to-day -day basis when we're looking at, at all the problems the teacher shortage creates? Is, is the substitute one the one that's the most glaring right now? Um, that's a great question. I'm going to say yes. Mm -hmm. and, and It looked like that had the highest numbers, right? I think 96% of, uh, of your respondents said that that was a major problem. Right, right. And, you know, um, it's because it's kind of like triage. Maybe that's a stretch, but you know, if you don't have a, a social studies teacher in sixth grade, you know that you plan for it. It's an all year thing, you know, but the day when substitutes don't show up, it's like, where's the tourniquet? What do I do? Um, and it's almost death by a thousand cuts, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And so you feel that every day because that's like a wait and see what if, who's going to show up today um all over the the stories all over the state are are well the word that came to mind is pathetic like they anybody they can find to to cover a room i'm i'm hearing social workers covering Eng, english english classes you know it's like we're not serving our kids well and we don't really have a choice yeah, I, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that too because you know in the report you guys have different quotes from administrators that you talked to and one of them mentioned the substitute thing and said that most of the substitutes that they're working with aren't educators and don't have a background in teaching and that that you know makes the whole learning process less and less effective. Is that something that you heard from a bunch of different folks? Similar thing? Yes, yes, and it it actually is a little bit of a domino, Peter. Um, I've, I heard the same thing from, from people all over the state where they said, you know, I don't have enough teachers. So some of my administrators are subbing for teachers and then the parapros are the other subs. And then the subs are filling in for parapros, but then I don't have enough substitutes. So the domino effect means you've got a, a measurable percentage of, kit, of classrooms that are not taught by content specialists or by um, you know, skilled educators. Um, it's interesting. They will also say to you, though, that being in person in a school setting is still better than trying to do remote. Even with all the caveats of having parapros cover for the subs and the subs cover for the teachers, even through all that, that's still preferable than remote learning. Yep. Wow. Yeah, and I'm hearing that in every corner. And you know, when I ask, like, how can that be? There's something about a learning community. There's something about being safe, knowing the kids are warm, that they are social distanced, that they have at least two meals a day, 
you know, all of those factors add into the quality of that day. And um, trained educators are providing lesson plans or, or curriculum structures. And so there's some learning in place. When kids are at home, they're distracted by what's happening in the house. They are turning their cameras off. You know, it's just a lot of things that, that don't provide a continuity um, a consistency that being in person provides. And I hear probably every day, I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Folks will tell me I can't make the meeting today because I'm teaching second grade. We've got um, administrators that have covered for bus drivers. We have got, you know, superintendents that jump on in if they need someone to cover a few routes in the morning before work. Yep. I had a board meeting last Friday. Um, I work for an 11 member board and we did not have a quorum because six of those administrators were teaching. So one was teaching kindergarten, another one was teaching algebra. <laughs> and so they couldn't make my board meeting because they were filling in as substitute teachers. And it's interesting in the, in the discussion of substitutes, money always comes up. Sure. Like we're going to, we're going to raise the, we're going to raise the rate so we can poach them from next door. And I'm hearing people as, as high as $200 a day and still can't fill the positions. So there's just nobody there, no matter what you're offering. Yep. There's, just, there's just no one there to take it. Yep, yep. And that's one of the things we're working on actually tomorrow in West 40, we're having um, ROEs and ISCs can provide short-term substitute training Yes, absolutely. Actually, this is something that I've been looking into this week. I've been trying to like see yep. what that looks like. And I'm like, can I attend one of these trainings? I want to see what it looks like. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, if you want, Peter, I'll ask Sharon. Um, my licensure person co-teaches it with my professional learning person. Yeah. And, you know, I have a great story about this, if, if you don't mind. No, please. Um, so the, we helped design the, um, the rules that allowed this. We charge $25 for the training. They get their fingerprinting done. They get for background checks. Um, and they take this three-hour course and they get a short-term sub-license, which allows them to teach in the same position up to 10 days. And um, the first time we did it, some of our district people sat in and they said, this is really good stuff. Will you come to the district and do the same training for all our subs? So I think we're providing a pretty good training that's only three hours long and costs almost nothing. Um, it, there are some stipulations, like you can only fill in a, a position for 10 days, but at least it's a very quick route to try and get people in. And I believe we've got a, a full class tomorrow of people and the districts are thrilled. Any any more subs we can get, the better. <laughs> and we're, I, I think that this time last year, weren't you kind of advocating for trying to get those short-term licenses from 10 to 30? Yep, yep. And that's not well, something that we've had in the last year? Well, I'm going to, can I just tell you, not on paper. <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> well, when a superintendent calls me and says, is there an official way you can extend and the, the option is an empty classroom versus somebody who's going to stay at day 11 or day 12. Um, 
you know, I'm going to be honest and, and say, if you've got a really good person that's resonating and engaging kids, I'm not going to be knocking on the door checking. I mean, that's the rule. But if you're able to keep school open, more power to you. Like you said, <laughs> if, if it's if it's not just a warm body, but good sub on day 12, we're going to take that every single day of the week over nobody. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And we're still having those conversations. And, you know, frankly, maybe not for today's conversation, but there's a lot of calendar talk. Like, what is a remote day? What's an adaptive oh, pause? What's I've heard the same day? thing. Yeah. And, you know, I've been saying the same thing to my superintendents. You have to have 176 instructional days for an approved calendar at the end of the year. Do what you got to do. And, you know, I'm probably going to approve that calendar if you get quality education for 176 days, you can call them whatever you want to call them. Um, I want kids safe and warm and fed and, you know, as much as we can get them into schools. So yeah. that's been the theme, Peter, is how flexible can we be? And when you're in a crisis mode over multiple years and districts are saying, we don't have a good solution all I can do is try to be supportive and flexible, you know, right. in, my, in my role. Bend but don't break is what we say in sports, right? <laughs> yep, exactly right. Yep, yep, exactly right. You know, I think we talked a little bit with the sub thing about, you know, people being qualified versus unqualified. I know that there's a part in the report where you guys talk about certain positions and the percentage of, you know, qualified versus unqualified. And I think that it was... I think it was school psychologists that maybe had the highest rate of, I think, being filled by people who are maybe not qualified for that position. I want to say that that's correct. You can double check me on that. But um, I was just curious to, to ask you about that problem, if that was something that uh, in terms of, of having positions like that, like a school psychologist, having that filled by someone who's maybe not qualified. Is that an issue that has really, really become evident during the pandemic, or is that something that existed before that has only been exacerbated by the current situation? So I'm going to say um, more, more of the second. Yeah. Um, historically, um, you, you specifically mentioned school psychologists. Um, we see it a lot in special education. We see it a lot in ESL. Yeah. Um, kids who are struggling and looking for more help but the district can't find teachers with those endorsements. Right. Um, our, our data point this year was over 2000 educator openings were either unfilled or they were filled by someone not qualified. So when you think about 2000 across the state, and if you multiply by an average case, I'm sorry, an average caseload or an average classroom of maybe 25 times 2000, that's a lot of unserved kids. <laughs> At the high school level, it's even worse. You know, high school teachers impact as many as, you know, 100, 150 kids a day. And so if you have 2,000 unfilled or underqualified um, folks, lots of kids are being impacted. So the, that continues to be an issue. And we talked about that trajectory, and COVID has just made it even worse. Is... You know, I remember in, I think it was the fall of 2020, 
I believe it was the um, Illinois, Asso Illinois Education Association released this report talking about um, the teacher shortage and also about how I think that the stat at the time was that like 30 something percent of yep. teachers were thinking about leaving the profession entirely, right? And I did want to ask, because there's a little bit about, you guys asked about attrition. Mm -hmm. Are we seeing large numbers of, of teachers and school staffs leave during COVID? Is that as big of a problem as that we feared? Yeah, um, so in, in a, on our, I think it's like page six of our media package. Yeah. The number one reason that schools report vacancies is retirement. And I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Um, you know, the, the second reason is resignation. Um, followed by the schools needing to fill a newly created position. Well, there are people, you know, in Illinois, you're qualified to, to retire at 55 as a, as a tier one teacher. Yeah. And so let's say you're 53 and maybe you have a health issue. <laughs> you're actually resigning, but you might as well take advantage of retirement. You're only going to lose, you know, a, a year's worth of credit or something mm -hmm. towards your retirement. So it's a little bit misleading or confusing to say um, the number one is retirement. Those aren't people necessarily that planned to retire, but chose retirement in the last couple of years and exiting. It, it, we heard it everywhere, Peter. Folks are saying, why would I put my, my life in jeopardy or my family's life in jeopardy for one more year of credit before retirement. Just go ahead and retire and maybe I'll sub if things get better and, and you know, augment my, my pension. But um, anyway, rules, the num numbers one and two are resignations and retirements. And so we were hit hard and a lot of that um, was COVID related, and I would even extend that, like almost concentric circles. It's not just physical health, but teachers were communicating all over the state that their social, emotional, their mental health, the strain of this whole situation, um, notwithstanding like, okay, you're about to go for the next three months remote without any training. And so all of a sudden you're trying to teach everything over Zoom and, you never anticipated more than maybe one day. And so we know that the stress level and the mental health of our educators has also been a compounding factor in resignations and in retirements. Oh yeah, even this year, I've heard so many teachers tell me that like, oh, in September, we're facing December level stress. And in December, we're at April yep. level stress, right? Yep, yep, yeah, we hear the exact same thing. And, um, you know, it's funny because they don't really want to use the word burnout because it isn't like I got tired of the profession. It's like all these other factors got heaped on top <laughs> and I can't find a way to dig myself out or breathe. Um, that's the kind of feeling I'm getting from folks. Yeah. I mean, can we talk a little bit about the solutions, right, that you guys outlined? I get it. I feel like we can get really dour if we want to, but... I know we talked a little bit about the short-term sub-licenses and stuff like that, but in terms of short-term solutions, and we could talk about long-term later, 
what are the programs that you're the most hopeful for or think that could help the most on a short-term basis? So um, for me, I think my, my favorite idea right now is recruiting second career people. Um, so, sort of anecdotally, we've heard people say, you know, I, I wanted to be a teacher or I thought about being a teacher, but in Illinois to be a teacher, I gotta, I've got to go back and, you know, at least two years of college, it costs a lot. It's a lot of time. In some cases, I can't even, I can't maintain my job because I have to student teach. Um, there are routes that people are talking about where let's say an engineer or a scientist or, you know, somebody, somebody like you in media, communications person that understands, you know, the English language arts. If they want to be a teacher, then hand them a teaching license. They can be a teacher tomorrow. I mean, this is my, my favorite strategy. Yeah. Is, Peter, you show up tomorrow, you could be a teacher. Here's your license. And I'm going to sign you a mentor and I'm going to provide you opportunities for skill development throughout the course of your first couple of years, but you're still making a salary and you're making a difference in a classroom tomorrow with a bunch of appropriate supports to help you, you know, build up those, those um, fundamental skills and not wait two years to take a bunch of additional classes um, to run up a bunch of debt and so on and so forth. Give you time to change your mind about it. <laughs> yep, yep. And, and so for me, um, I think that that's one of the most promising. Now, I, do, I know some states are allowing something very similar with an associate's degree. Um, that's a little bit more, a little bit less maturity, a little bit less um, base, you know, than, than somebody who's already got a bachelor's degree. But still, if you're in a crisis mode, and, and if you can provide the other supports, that mentor, teacher, additional skill development, and so forth, the idea that people can make a livable wage while they're doing this, and you've got quality committed people in front of kids, um, I love that. And I think there's something to be said if I was to say, Peter, this is your third grade classroom or your middle school language arts classroom. You've got those kids all year. There's a, a kind of a commitment that isn't sub-minded, like it's not day-to-day. -day. It's like I'm making a difference over time. And yeah. people love that about our profession. So for me, that that's like number one. And those alternate pathways are growing too. I think that it said 33% in the report. Yep, yep, exactly. And that's been the flag we're waving. Um, the second one is about money. And we're asking the legislature to put in a, a boatload of money. Um, I, I would like to see around $10 million in scholarship money for candidates of color. And it just has historically been that our teacher candidates of color have had a tougher road. Um, and if we could support that financially and some of these other supports I just mentioned, um, I, I think that that's an untapped part of the pipeline that we know would have positive impact on our students of color. Research is really clear about that. So if I had to pick the two things I would make happen, those would be the top two. Yeah. 
And we can go into long-term solutions. You can give a few of those, but I'm curious, like you said, this has been a problem. I think you said since 2015, you guys have been talking about it. Yep. There have been efforts since then where you've said the legislator needs to do this. We need to see more programs like this. Are there some programs that we've seen get passed or introduced over the last couple of years that have made a big difference? Um, that have made a big difference? I'm going to say not really. <sighs> it's an interesting, there's an interesting tension. When we started the conversations five years ago, seven years ago, I would define this as sort of the expedited route versus the quality. And it, it, it's, it's a conversation, not just in teaching, but if you make this product too fast, it won't be as high a quality. It's that kind of notion. And higher ed was saying, you know, you can't just hand them a license. It, they need a well-developed program and we can barely fit it into four years. So higher ed was, was really pushing back on these expedited systems. Oh, you mean higher um, ed was moving slowly? I'm shocked. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, yes. And, you know, they took a lot of flack because people were like, you're just trying to protect, protect your tuition because you're trying to keep viable. And I think some of that's true. Um, you know, I, I'm a funny one to talk because I spent five years in my bachelor's program got my master's, got my doctorate, you know, so I, <laughs> I put in a bunch of years trying to get good at what I do. You went down the pathway. Yeah, exactly. And so I was in meetings where higher ed would, would say, absolutely not. We cannot support this. Our, our young candidates need a full four-year program. And the field was saying, you know, can we give them a two-year program or can we get them into a into a um, classroom tomorrow, like we just discussed. And so there there's been this ongoing kind of tension. And in the meantime, we're watching it get worse and worse and worse, you know, and for our superintendents to say, you know, we expect it to get worse through 23 and through 24. Um, the candidate pools, Peter, are so much smaller. The, the pipelines are just almost drying up. Now, as you said, a couple of years ago, we started to see it level out. Post-COVID, I'm hoping that we can watch it, it grow again. But, you know, in programs where they were putting out 800 candidates a year, and now, you know, we're trying to have completioners of about 200 a year. Um, it's, a, it's a much smaller pipeline. And no one is really showing great progress. It's, it feels like a lot of sort of band-aids. It doesn't feel like we're fixing the problem. And I think we have to continue to be open to, to creative things, at least during the crisis. Right. You know, we're, we're bailing out the rowboat with a teaspoon and um, we've got to find almost anything we can to help keep kids in school and then work to improve that over time moving forward. Okay, Mark, I won't keep you for too much longer. Again, I know you talked to a bunch of different superintendents for this, and you could probably go over a bunch of quotes that you heard from them, but were there any in particular that you heard from any superintendents or administrators that really struck a chord with you? Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of, of good ones in the, in the report, Peter. I think 
this one didn't make it into into the report, but one that really kind of stabbed me in the chest was like, we're finding it hard to have hope. And, you know, I really grasped that, like, that's become my number one job. How do I find ways to reinstill hope that, um, you know, people are using words like overwhelming and, um, you know, catastrophe or crisis or uh, folks are just drowning in because right. academic pain. problems or financial problems you can think through we can do a b and c to try to help that but this is more existential yep yep i remember one of the superintendents said something about people are leaving teachers and administrators are leaving our profession early because of the overwhelming stress of COVID. And, you know, it really struck me that people who might want to be educators, there's just so much additional, and I think you and I may have even talked about it before, this idea of polarized political stress around the issues. Um, there isn't just one good solution. And in the meantime, I, I was asking Dr. Ayala last week, you know, we do state testing in March. That's going to feel like gasoline on the fire. You know, like now we're going to do high stakes testing right on the heels of, you know, trying to get through this latest surge. Um, that level of stress is, is driving people out of the profession. Like there's something else they'd rather do that's not nearly as stressful. Um, that bothers me. I really think we've got to find ways to reinstill hope and innovation and excitement. Um, our kids are worth it and our kids deserve it. We've got to find a way to, to recapture it. Yeah, and it's trying to recapture hope. Good luck, it's, it's bold. I hope, <laughs> I hope that we can find something. <laughs> well, we're gonna do our best. And as an organization across the state, that, that's the language I'm using as president. Like we are that we we can track ourselves back to the civil war so we're that stable entity that's not going away we're here we're going to help we're going to protect and you know as i admitted earlier if i have to be a little bit flexible on some of the rules to try to make this livable i'm going to do that unprecedented times unprecedented solutions right absolutely peter yep absolutely Thanks for listening to the show. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing the podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share, like, whatever you can do. Helps us get more teachers on the show. You can also subscribe to the Teachers Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show and find a link to do that on this episode's webpage, again, over at wnij.org. And a big shout out to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups. They provide the music you hear every single episode. Thanks to Spencer Tripp for our Teacher's Lounge logo. And I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.